Would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of Matthew? This uh, morning, I'm going to be offering a sermon that is uh, going to take you into different sections of the Scripture. It'll be a bit of a systematic study this morning where we're going to dig into some theology. And as we go, I will share more with you about my intentions and where we're going in the study. But I need you in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We are going to pick up right in the middle of this first century document written by an eyewitness of the historical Jesus. And in this section of this document written by Matthew, he records for us what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, or more appropriately, what it should be understood as is the disciples' prayer, because the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him to teach them how to pray, and this is what he offers them in the gospel accounts. Matthew has it situated within a longer discourse of Jesus, so we're going to jump into the middle of this discourse of Jesus and find your way to verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What I want to highlight by way of introduction this morning is something that is often read past when we look at the disciples' prayer. A really radical phrase, two, two words that are put together in this prayer that Jesus offers. And those Two words are our Father. We read past that. We take it for granted. There is something that is absolutely profound and, and, and powerful in, in what Jesus is offering to his disciples to pray. He is inviting them to call his Father their Father, our Father. Look at where we left off at verse 13 after the Amen. He goes on in verse 14 to say, If you forgive others of their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, again, he says, your Father. So we get our Father in the prayer. Jesus is inviting us to call his Father our Father. And then following the prayer, he reminds them. Verse 14, verse 15, this is your Father. I'm going to unpack more of the significance of this theology of, of God as, as, as Father in this message this morning. And Hence, I've titled my sermon today, Our Father in the Son. It's going to be a part of a series that I'm going to be offering for this month that I've entitled, A Family Made in Heaven. We are going to be looking this month into the doctrine of adoption, and it coincides wonderfully with the month of November, which is a month that is devoted in our culture and many cultures around the world to adoption. To kick off the month in our worship together, I want to drive you today into God's Word so that we can study this important doctrine, the doctrine of adoption, which isn't about the social work of welcoming the orphan into our homes. It's actually about the, the, the work of God welcoming, welcoming us into His family. The Bible teaches us that when we are saved, we are actually adopted into God's family by none other than God himself. Since we cannot understand salvation apart from God, this morning we are going to begin the series by looking at the doctrine of God. 
And from a right understanding and a foundation of the doctrine of God, we'll move into soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And I'll just keep probing it and probing it this month as we gather on Lord's Day and we seek the Lord of the harvest for the social work of adoption, but we also come to worship Him and give praise to Him for the profound soteriological work of adoption. National Adoption Month in our country is acknowledged in all 50 states, as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Uh, other nations around the world also acknowledge this. And so it is a wonderful time for us to, to pause and to think and to ponder and to dig into God's Word. The U.S. Department of Health and Services reports that there are uh, 100,000 children right now in U.S. foster care who are available for permanent adoption. Uh, last year, more than 26,000 children aged out and were left without a family when they aged out. Disproportionately, we know in terms of uh, crime and incarceration and addiction that many who find themselves in, in, in such predicaments come from places where they never had a forever family. They never had a forever family. There's no place to go home for Thanksgiving or for the holidays. There's no one to call when you're in a quandary. Uh, you know, Dad, I need help. There is no dad. There is no mom. There is no brother. There is no sister. Uh, the White House uh, typically issues a presidential proclamation for National Adoption Month, and uh, we saw just a few days ago one issued on their website. There are hundreds of thousands of kids who are without families, and it's a wonderful thing for us to pause to think about in this month. Now let me give you some full disclosure as I begin this sermon series, A Family Made in Heaven. Uh, in this series, and even in today's message, at, at some point this month, as I'm, I'm preaching on the doctrine of adoption, I pray that we will stir people to have a passion for adoption. Um, in years past, when we've paused in November to do this uh, and to preach on this, God has always been faithful to move in the lives of people in our church, and they say, I want to do this, and we see our church growing by way of fostering and adoption, and it's such a powerful thing to see. And I would love to see the Lord do that yet again. Many of you are able to do it and can do it. I, I hope that God will move on you, that it will be His doing and not our compulsion. Uh, with that said, many of you are unable to do it. And we totally understand that. So I hope that you won't feel like, oh, you know, I've even heard that critique of our church. Uh, they think if you don't adopt, you're not a good Christian. And that's just not true. Uh, many, many people should not adopt. If your health is poor, or maybe you're too old, or maybe you're too young, maybe it's just not a good time right now, maybe your marriage is going through something, maybe you're struggling with mental or physical health, things beyond your control, uh, we totally understand that. Uh, on the other hand, there might be some things in your control that you could use as a call to, to repent and to seek transformation. If you're immature, if you're selfish, if you prefer comfort in toys rather than sacrifice in children. Uh, with that said, full disclosure, I, I don't want to leave those who are in predicaments where they're not mature enough or they're just going through things beyond their control. I, I certainly don't want you to leave and say, yeah, I'm going to adopt because the last thing that a child needs is to, is to go from one bad place to another. They don't need a house with yelling and anger and spiritual immaturity, a Peter Pan dad, a nagging mom. 
parents consumed by career, workaholism, other isms, idolatry. They don't need that. They need sanctuary. So with those disclosures disclosed, I have one final disclosure before we start digging in and getting deeper and deeper into the text this morning. One more disclosure. More than calling us into action as a church, this sermon series and this sermon today isn't so much a call to action, it's a call to repentance and faith. It's a call to worship God. It's a call to see God and to see what He's doing in the world and to bow down before Him and honor Him and know His love and give your life to Him. Speaking of Him, what does God think about this? You have on your outline B, the heart of God for the orphans. We read in the Bible that God is a God who cares about the orphan. We read in the Bible that He has a steady compassion for those who are orphaned. On your outline, you see number one under B, the heart of God for orphans, that God defends the orphans. We, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. There in front of you, verse 17 and 18, for the Lord your God is the God of the gods and the Lord of the lords. He executes justice for the orphan. We see God defends the orphan, Deuteronomy 10. Second, we see God cures, curses, excuse me, uh, those who harm the orphan in Deuteronomy 27, 19, which reads, Cursed is he who distorts the justice, do an alien, an orphan, and a widow. Uh, thirdly, so we see God defends the orphans. One, two, God curses those who harm the orphan. Thirdly, God cares deeply for the orphan. He cares deeply for the orphan. We, we, we read of his care for the orphan in Deuteronomy 24, which says, when you, when you reap your harvest in the fields, when you reap your harvest in the field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you, will, you shall not go over the, the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Hosea 14.3 we read, For in you the orphan finds mercy. Uh, so we see that God has a heart for the orphan. He defends them. He curses those who harm them. He cares for them. Fourthly, we see that God calls His people to action to defend the orphan. We read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, very clearly, God commands, defend the orphan. Zechariah 7.10, do not oppress the widow or the orphan. James chapter 1, verse 27, sums up pure spirituality in terms of caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Pure and undefiled religion, James writes, in the sight of God and our Father is this, to visit orphans, widows in their distress. You know, many people will spill a lot of ink when it comes to talking about spirituality, and they spill a lot of ink making spirituality sound like it's an individual, internal kind of thing. And to be sure, there is an individual and internal element to our spirituality, but when you reduce it to just that, you're missing out on the robust biblical vision of spirituality. We mustn't turn spirituality into merely inward-focused things, it also has to cut outward and specifically to those who are weak and marginalized. And there is none who is more weak and marginalized uh, than the orphaned. This tendency in the heart of mankind to focus on ourselves and what we want, uh, it actually isn't spirituality. It is actually sinful. And it reminds us of what we read in the opening of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, where paradise was lost by men 
by humans who, who decided to do what internally made sense to them. You see, as the Bible opens, we read of a God who's love and a God who creates and a God who makes humanity in his own image and he pours his love on humanity. God, God said that it wasn't good for humanity to be alone and he designed the family unit with a man and a woman and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and through these family units and social order would come and flourishing in the earth. However, humanity rebelled against God, and as a result, we are disconnected from God and one another, and there's great division and darkness in the land. In fact, there's death in the land as well, and death in our bodies. The wages of sin is death. Sin messes up our bodies, it messes up our communities, it messes up our homes, and it leaves many orphaned. It leaves many out in the wild, in the darkness, exposed. Now, with that said, we have uh, on our outline by way of introduction, it's National Adoption Month. We see God cares for the heart of orphans. Thirdly, by way of introduction, to understand adoption, we must look to God and the gospel. Would you move from Matthew chapter 6, where we see Jesus inviting us to call his father our father, reminding his disciples that he is indeed your father. Turn from Matthew 6 and find your way over to Ephesians chapter 1. This sermon uh, is going to be a systematic theology of the doctrine of God and uh, an introduction into the doctrine of soteriological adoption. Soteros means to save, so we're looking at how adoption is used to explain to us what God has done for us. An orphan, uh, in, in the original Greek language, we have our English translations, of course, of the text, but in the original Greek, the word was orphanos. An orphanos is a child that is temporarily or permanently bereaved of or abandoned by his or her parents. Being a child without parents is a hopeless place to be. Uh, many of you have experienced uh, absentee parents and you feel the pain of that. Uh, a mom or dad who are always at the office or always at the club or doing whatever and are never around and you feel the pain of that. We understand that experience. It is not limited to our culture or time. Having absentee parents or parents who you've never known being orphaned is a universal human experience and it's a painful and horrible one. Complete abandonment, orphanhood is very difficult. It is a scary place to be. And this condition is what the Bible uses to portray God's work of salvation, to portray what theologians call concupiscence or original sin. You hear this phrase, original sin, often in the church. You read in scriptures that we are born sinners. In fact, even in pop culture, you see people are aware of the reality that we are born sinners. I think of J. Cole and his recent album that was entitled Born Sinner. Uh, to further describe the condition of being born in sin, the Bible describes us as being orphans. Uh, we are, because of humanity's rebellion against the Creator, we're actually born in sin and we're born orphaned from God. We, we are not born as God's, God's children when we're conceived and we enter the world. We're actually born as orphans. It's a sobering reality. Our relationship with God is not what it should be. Sure, people call God Father, but the truth is He is not Father for many. Any more than a stranger can walk up uh, you know, and, 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 and call me dad or something like that. And like, hey, hey, I'm not your dad, okay? Uh, I got a heart for orphans and all, but I'm not your dad, at least not yet. So um, I'm always happy to welcome the orphan, but I'm not your dad. That would be just really weird to walk up on someone and be like, dad, dad, is that you? Uh, I think there's a scene in Elf with uh, like that, dad, you know, and it freaks him out, right? 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So we have an adoption through Jesus. Hence, the sermon title this morning, Our Father in the Son. We have been made sons through the Son, you see. The text here that we just read, these, these verses, reminds us that it is God who is the one who chose us. If, if you're saved, it's because God chose you. And that's one of the powerful things about adoption. In adoption, uh, it, it involves a choice. In, in our own family, we began our, our family with adoption. My eldest son was adopted and my wife got pregnant while we were adopting, so the boys are actually very close. And intentionally, we wanted to start our family that way because if in the years you know, a- after that, if our kids turned into bullies and they were like, you're adopted, you know, he could say, I was here first. <laughs> you know, they just had you, but they chose me, right? And, and that's the power of Paul and Scripture explaining what God has done for us through this metaphor of adoption. God chose us. He didn't just have us. He he actually chose us. And we didn't have that choice coming. We weren't little cute orphan annies. You know, oh, I want that one. Or you go to the dog pound or whatever to adopt a dog. And, you know, I like that one. I like the cute one. No, we were the raging dog who was raging and biting and wanted nothing but adoption. Just euthanize me. I hate you. I hate this world. That's what God chose. Don't believe me? Look at Ephesians chapter 2 in front of you. Draw your eyes at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them, We too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We're children of wrath. We're vipers and diapers. We're not cute little orphan annies. There's nothing cute about us at all. Uh, You know, little redhead orphan annie, that's cute. If you want a redhead parallel to what we are, we were Chuckies. (laughs) Little Chuckies with... Life, I hate you. I want you to die. The text describes us that way. Under, the, under the, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that's a description of Satan. Jesus uh, spoke in his ministry and called out people. You're of your father, Satan. You're, you're, you're in the darkness. You're, you're not a cute orphan. You're, you're, uh, you are, 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 are cursed. But here's the good news. God has come to rescue you and to take you home kicking and screaming. He has come to take you home to change your heart, to pour His love upon you, to pour His Spirit out on you, to regenerate that dead heart and give it life. And in that, in that act of God's salvation, in welcoming us in, we actually have union with Him, our Father in the Son. And so to understand that union, I need to take you into the great and wondrous doctrine of God, specifically the doctrine of the Trinity, which you have on your outline. What is the doctrine of the Trinity or the triunity of God? It is that doctrine that 
God eternally exists as three distinct and co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and yet there is only one God. We are dealing with one being, one substance, one nature, one God, who eternally exists in three persons. To understand the Trinity as it is taught in Scripture and handed down through the sands of time by faithful Christians, you need to understand four basic things that you have written on your outline. I encourage you to commit these to memory. These are good things to understand as you worship God. You want to understand who you're worshiping. To be in relationship with someone, you want to understand them as they've revealed themselves. Uh, sometimes people say, we don't need all this doctrine stuff, you know. We just need, you know, we just need emotion. We just need to worship God. We don't need all this doctrine stuff. Doctrine is just, just communicating what God is like and how he's revealed himself, right? If, 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 I, if my wife and I are out on a date or whatever, and she wants to tell me something about herself that she's never told me before, and I was like, you know, I don't need all that doctrine. <laughs> don't, don't tell me about yourself. We're good. You know, you'd say, you guys need counseling. Like, what's wrong with you? You can't have a relationship with someone if you don't, if, if when they're telling you what they're like and what they are, you just shut it down, that's not spirituality. That, 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 that isn't a loving relationship. So here, here's God as he has revealed himself. There is one and only one true and living God. This one God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These three persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. Hence, the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. They share one nature. They're, they're one being. So one isn't smarter than the other or stronger than the other or what, whatever. They share one divine nature. Fourthly, while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. So then we see that the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. I, this is important to understand. Sometimes uh, bootlegger preachers who don't know their theology well will say, see, the Trinity is a lot like me. <laughs> That's always a bad way to begin, but it's a lot like me. I'm a pastor, I'm a father, and I'm a neighbor, right? You go, no, that's wrong, because you're all one person. Those are just different uh, titles or positions that you, the one person, hold. We're actually dealing with three distinct persons. Okay, this is how we understand God. This is how God has revealed himself. This is how we speak of Jesus, the Son, as being with God and God at the same time. Uh, that said, would you turn from the book of Ephesians, turn to the left, and find your way to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John begins by describing God and the Word of God. The Word of God is a title for Christ. And he says, he says, the Word, the Word that is with God and is God, that all things come into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. He describes the Son, the Word, Jesus, as being with God and being God at the same time. How, how can you do that? Very simply, He's with God in that the Son is with the Spirit and the Father because the Son is not the Father and is not the Spirit. And He is God because they share the same divine nature. You see that in John chapter 1. I'll come back, I'll come back to that in a moment and we'll read it again. A simple way of understanding this is that there are three who's in God. Three persons or whose and one what. Now, 
with the one what of God, this holy, eternal, immutable, loving God. And these persons in mind, let's zoom in to focus on this person here, the son, becoming a man. This is what we call, and it's on the bottom of your outline, the doctrine of the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, the doctrine of incarnation. What is this doctrine? It is the act of God the Son, whereby He permanently took to Himself a human nature, so that He is fully God and fully man. So that as there is one what, one God, and three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit, that one who, the Son, actually now has two what's. One what that is divine and one what that is human. On your outline, if you flip it over at the top there, you have Christ's incarnation involves four essential affirmations. Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine, number one. Number two, Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Number three, the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ are distinct and completely united in the one person. Fourthly, Jesus was born of a virgin by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not doctrine for doctrine's sake. This is revelation. This is God saying, hey, I love you. I want you to know me. I want you to understand me. Here's, here's who I am. Here's what I am. And here's what I have done. The eternal son took on flesh. John chapter 1 in front of you. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, with this understanding of God and the work of salvation that we have covered from Ephesians, from John. Let's move now on your outline to point to the scandal and the severity of the incarnation. A scandal, an irony of sorts. What is an irony? It is a sharp incongruity that goes beyond the simple and evident intention of the words and the actions. Ironic statements often convey a meaning that is exact the opposite of the literal meaning. More than an irony, it's a scandalous irony. And so you have on your outline there the scandal of the incarnation and the reality of the Father. There is an excellent little book that addresses the irony or the scandal of the historical Jesus. The book is actually entitled Scandalous, and it is written by one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Dr. D.A. Carson. Uh, by scandalous or, or irony, he unpacks for us some really simple and profound points as we understand the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, by scandalous, he, he's digging into this irony of Jesus incarnate, the Son incarnate, and Jesus then being crucified as God the Son in the flesh. Here are the ironies of the cross. The man who is mocked as king is king. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. The man who can't save himself saves others. You see this as he hangs on the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice for his people. They're mocking him. Here's the king. Here's the king. He actually is king. <laughs> that's the irony. You're mocking him, but that's actually what he is. He's, he's on the cross and, and a man cries out, oh, look at him. He can't do anything. Actually, he could do everything. He could pull the nails right out and just... Just, uh, just throw him right at you and you'd be gone. I mean, he could just take the cross and just come right off of it and hit everyone over the head with the cross. He could absolutely do anything that he wanted at any moment. He's all-powerful God. 
He can't save himself, they mocked him. But actually, as he was dying on the cross, and he looked at that thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. While he was dying, he was saving someone. There's another scandal, another irony that uh, Carson didn't mention in his book, but I'm sure he would amen me adding this to his book. The man who is fatherless has a father. In the gospel accounts, we see, you know, isn't this Joseph's kid? Isn't this, isn't this, you know? No, that's, that's his stepdad. He actually has a father, right? Uh, you, know, you know, that doesn't make sense. How can he be fatherless and have a father? Well, it depends in what sense you speak. In the earthly sense, Jesus has no father, right? I mean, the whole virgin conception thing that we celebrate at Christmas is that uh, Mary conceives asexually. It's parthenogenesis. That's the technical medical term. And so he doesn't have an earthly father. But by golly, he has a heavenly father who he has eternally dwelt with in the beginning. John 1.1 1, 1 was the word. The word was with God. and The word was God. Right. He's eternally dwelt with the father. He has a father. And because of this reality, right, we say uh, the one who is fatherless in the sense of the earth, he has a father. There's a lot of good stuff going on here in John 1 that is in front of you. I hope the irony and the scandal will sink in as we dig into this text and we reflect on this text and this wondrous theology of the Incarnation. I want you to notice and, and, and see that the word, word there, it is the Word of God, the word, word there, comes from a Greek word, logos. It is used here as a synonym or a nickname for Jesus. He is the Word, He is the logos. He is said to be with God and to be God at the same time. And the only way that you can explain that is, as it has been explained this morning, the doctrine of the triunity of God. The Word is with God and is God. And the Word, verse 14 again, becomes flesh. And we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father. Now, let me draw your attention to verse 18 here in John chapter 1, where John, who was talking about Jesus coming, says in verse 18, look at verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, right? Because God's invisible, He's immortal, He's immaterial. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one has seen God before Christ because God is immaterial. He is not a physical being. You can only see physical things, right? I see these posts, I can see the lights, I can see uh, Isaiah in the front row, I can, I can see... Pastor Tony with his clipboard. I can only see physical things. God is not physical, so we don't see him in that sense. But, but John looks at Jesus and says, he has explained him. How does he explain him? Because Jesus is God the Son in the flesh, a full human who you can see, who is also fully divine. So when you're looking at him, you are looking at God in the one person of God the Son. So you see here in verse 14, and, and, and you see here in verse 18, this language of him being only begotten. What, what does that mean? Let me put it in front of you in the original language here. This term, only begotten God, monogenes theos, only begotten son, monogenes huios. These are, these are really important terms. Um, um, God is a, a, is a God of order. He's a God of revelation. When he describes himself, he uses technical terms so we'll understand him. When the Bible says that Jesus is begotten, this literally means uh, something along the lines of unique. If you break down this word monogenes as a compound, mana means only or alone or soul. 
Ganas means unique, one and only, one of a kind, one of a class. The ancient fathers of the church would speak of the begottenness of the Son. Uh, in the history of the church, we have a special doctrine called eternal generation. Uh, without getting too much into the doctrine of eternal generation and the riches that it explains for us, let me simply uh, uh, just kind of survey it for you and emphasize that Jesus is unique. I cannot stress this enough in saying that He is unique, and I cannot stress it enough to say to you when you hear the word begotten, don't interpret it through the lens of your English. Interpret it through the lens of the language in which it was given, because for us, when we hear begotten, we think made or procreated. Uh, the fact of the matter is, there is a Greek word for made or procreated. It is monoktesis, not monogenes, it's monoktesis. Uh, John doesn't describe, none of the Bible, none, none of the early church describes Jesus as monoktesis, he's monogenes. There are two things here. Number one, sonship, and number two, deity. Jesus is unique, and his uniqueness is tied to his sonship. You see, the Spirit is not the Son of the Father. Only the Son is the Son of the Father. This is unique. It's monogenes. Secondly, it's tied to His deity. He is God. John says He is God and He is with God. Now then, how does that work to be with and be is? That's where we get into the Trinity. We go, oh, wow, that's amazing who God is. We're, that's absolutely amazing. Our Christology ties into our triunity of God. Now, with all of this in our minds, let's move this into our hearts and let's dig in and press in to the, the title this morning, Our Father in the Son. As we understand the Son and the Father, we understand what we have been adopted into and united with. Um, we'll eventually get into the doctrine of adoption, but we need to begin with our doctrine of God. Who is adopting us? Who is He? It is important for us to understand that when we speak about God and when we speak specifically about the Father, that is not a metaphor. We're not saying fa you know, Father as some kind of a metaphor. It's actually literal. Uh, the Bible says this is an eternal thing, that there is an eternal Father and Son. God existed with three persons, and, and among, among those persons, two of them specifically, there is shared between the Son and the Father a paternal relationship. This was before the, the beginning. John 1, in the beginning, right? That's how the Hebrew Bible begins. Before there was creation, there was a father and a son. So it's not a, a metaphor because God is eternally this way. There are three persons, not three names. Hence, this is a personal and relational matter that is real. Draw your eyes up here and let me give you a quote from a theologian, John Smale from the Church of Scotland. He writes, a father cannot be a father without a son. A son cannot be a son without a father. And yet, at the same time, the nature of the love that unites them so closely is such that it affirms the distinctness of the one over against the other. It takes two to love. And if we are to be true to the revealed data of Scripture, there can be no modalistic collapse into an undifferentiated unipersonal Godhead. Within the unity of being and presence they share, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. Within the being of the one God, the Son does not send, He is sent. It is the Son who is incarnate, crucified and risen, not the Father. It is the Father who initiates and the Son who responds to and obeys that initiation. I want you to see this reality. I want you to see this not as mere doctrine. I want you to see this as a part that is so fundamental to your soul and your worship. I want you to see that this is not a mere metaphor. 
Further, this is not an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is where you use human terms to describe something. Uh, like a tree branch, and you say, oh, it's waving in the wind, like, like a hand waving. Well, a hand that belongs to a human, anthropos, anthropomorphism, you're using a human phrase to describe something that is not human. When we call God Father, specifically when we call the Father the Father, this is not an anthropomorphism. Follow me. You see, the Bible does not use Father and Son language as an anthropomorphism to, to, to sort of give us a way of understanding Him. We do not project our notion of father and son onto God. Rather, God has projected his, his paternity and his son upon us. So rather than thinking of it anthropomorphically, we need to think of this theomorphically. The father is really a father and not in a human or anthropomorphic sense. Rather, our human idea of the father is theomorphic. It comes from him. Hang on, hang on. Listen close. Listen close. I know we're doing some deep stuff this morning. Hang on. Our speech about God comes from His self-expression to us. And that's, that's ultimately what the Bible is. It is His self-expression to us. Now, certainly, there are metaphors and anthropomorphisms inside of the Bible. For example, there's a metaphor about God wrapping His wings around us. We don't think God's a bird, right? Oh, we come to worship the bird God. No, that's a, that's a, a zoomorphic uh, thing that's using you know, characteristics of an animal metaphorically to describe him. An example of an anthropomorphism, God is anthropomorphically also said to have hands and eyes and feet, uh, but we don't think the triune God is a, is a man walking around or anything like that. Those are just human terms. I want you to see that there is no indication in the Bible anywhere that God is anthropomorphically father and son. In fact, I'm very con you know, concerned that such an idea is heretical, and I'm very concerned that many Christians haven't taken the time to really think and reflect on this. The word father is not a metaphor. Can I get it? Amen. That's a, uh, uh, anthropomorphic. It, it's not anthropomorphic. God's really a father. Our concept of a father isn't us projecting onto him. Our concept of a father actually comes from him. The father is the archetypal father meaning all earthly fatherhood is more or less an imperfect copy of his perfect fatherhood. We have fathers on earth because there's a father in heaven. Amen? If there, if there were no fathers in the earth, or even humans for that matter, the first person of the triune God would still be a father in himself, and not simply with reference to us. This should not be a surprise. After all, we are made in his image, not he in our image. Granted, there are figment of your own imagination gods and lots of false gods and false religions. Uh, it has been said that God created man in his image, and ever since the fall, man has been trying to repay the favor by creating gods in his own image. It's the other way around. I'm digressing on this. This is important, friends. It is important for us today because the combination of theological illiteracy in churches and the pervading influence of secular culture has, has left many with... Uh, a, a grossly distorted understanding of the fatherhood of God, not to mention the masculinity of God, which has uh, been attacked, that we would call God a he. That's so, that's so oppressive. That's, so, that's the patriarchy. Uh, you, know, you need to open your eyes. He, he, he can define his own gender. God can define what, what he wants to be. The alphabet police are coming for you. How dare you say he's a he? I didn't say he's a he. He said he was a he. We're not making this stuff up. Some Christians have been so influenced by these things that they 
uh, naively and, and, and inadvertently, blasphemously have entered into using feminine pronouns in reference to God. They argue that God has no gender since God is not physical, so it does not matter if we call him a he, a she, a they, a they, or whatever else you want to come up with. I'm here to tell you that in such matters, because uh, God is a revealing God who's revealed himself, this actually matters. He's a he. He's a father. He's a son. He's the spirit. And the spirit is referred to with masculine pronouns as well. All of this to say, our calling God a he or a father is not to be explained as a vestigial memory of some bygone patriarchal oppressive society. It is, it, is, it is not something a bunch of old chauvinistic patriarchs made up back in the day to oppress people. No, it's actually the witness of Scripture and the church. It's not about oppression, it's about liberation. See, again, we're all born orphaned. We're all born rebels. And here comes God who liberates and loves us and gives us a relationship in the Son with His Father, the archetypal Father, the Father of fathers. We get to have as our Father. Understanding that God really has a father-son relationship in Him, since two of the persons are Father and Son, it, it, it should draw us in, into worship. And it moves us as we reflect on, you know, uh, the, this understanding that when you're saved, you're actually adopted. If you're not scandalized by this, you really got to get into the world of Jesus. You have John 1 in front of you. If you would turn to the fifth chapter, John chapter 5. What I want you to see in John chapter 5 is the seriousness of Jesus in calling God the Father in that culture. In John 5, we see Jesus speaking of the Father as His Father. I want you to see the reaction of the people because they see that as scandalous. A lot of people throw around Father when they're talking about God. Oh, yeah, He's a Father or whatever. But in that cultural context, that was scandalous. John chapter 5, draw your eyes at verse 8. You see verse 8 there? Jesus said, get up, pick up your pallet. Immediately the man became well and he picked up his pallet and he began to walk. Now it was the, the Shabbat. It was the Sabbath on that day. Jesus heals a guy. Again, we see, you know, though he hangs powerless on the cross dying, he has ultimate power. Jesus heals him with his power. This is significant in Scripture because God creates, God, God creates in Genesis by the power of his word. And here we see Jesus healing by the power of his word. And of course, John calls him the word. It's a, a very powerful way of writing and describing or re revealing God. So Jesus heals the man by the power of his word. And notice the reaction of the crowd. Look at verse 10. So the Jewish people, verse 10, were saying to the man who was cured, it's Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Uh, you're not allowed to work on Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry stuff. So this guy who's been, you know, crippled and, and bedridden for a long time now, you know, is healed and he gets up and he's got his bed and, and they go for him. They go, hey, that's work. Um, <laughs> that's like, dude, he just got healed. Chill out, you know. Um, folks were offended. It was not PC in their culture to carry things on Shabbat. This is, uh, you know, this, uh, this, so the scene is intensifying. Look at verse 16. For this reason, uh, the Jewish people are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know, how dare you heal cripples on the Sabbath? You're like, a cripple just got healed. How cool is that? Now look at Jesus's reaction in verse 17. What does he say to them? My father is working until now, and I myself am working. 
Okay, pause. Jesus says, my father, my father, okay? And let's, let's see how they react to this, him calling the father, my father. Look at verse 18. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he's, he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In other words, in that culture, calling on God as father was a claim of deity. They understood Jesus as saying that he was equal with God. And of course, with our doctrine of the Trinity, we go, yeah, he is though. He's one with the Father, one with the Spirit. They share one nature. He, he is equal. Uh, so, so Jesus presses into them. He says, yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Jesus goes on in response to his critics who are mad that he would call the Father his Father. And he says in verse 20, look at verse 20, the Father loves the Son. And he speaks of how the Father has given authority to the Son to raise people and to judge sin. He puts his name, Jesus does, on par with the Father's name. So feel this scandal in its context. The one without the earthly father has a heavenly father, and his father is the father. And he is uniquely monogamous with this father. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the father are one, right? Not the same, but one, sharing the same divine nature. Now, this is amazing. This is, this is incredible. And this then, as we understand God rescuing us and saving us, then means that we're actually brought in union. We're brought in union. The man who is mocked, the man who is powerless, the, 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 the man who hangs on the cross is the Father's unique Son. And that Son has come to make us sons by His grace. As a result of this, not only should we uh, read the text and see why they were scandalized that he called the Father his Father, we should also read the text and see the scandal on your outline here of Jesus calling us his brothers. Look at John chapter 20. Turn from the 5th chapter to the 20th chapter. In John chapter 20, if you draw your eyes at verse 16, Jesus says to Mary, Mary, and then she turns, verse 16, and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. I'm sharing my daddy with you. And because of this, you, you, you are actually my brothers. The word that is is used in the text here for my brethren. This is the term Adelphos. You're brothers. This is a sibling bond where we share the same parent. We have birthed children in our family. We have adopted children in our family. And they share the same dad. They share the same mom. They are brothers. Uh, there's seven of us, we're, we're a loud tribe, and we'll go to the store or something, and, you know, strangers will go, are, are all those yours? And I go, yeah, 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 they're all mine. <laughs> you know, or we're borrowing some, would you like to give us some more? You know, no, yes, they're all mine. And they'll say, well, some of them don't, don't look like the other ones. I say, yes, but I don't look at all like my father. What do you mean? Well, my father's perfect and holy. I'm sinful, guilty. I've behaved shamefully in my life. I'm nothing like my father who is perfect. What do you mean? You see, well, there's a father God in heaven and he sent his son for us. Hold up, stop cramming your religion down my throat. I was just wondering why that one kid has red hair and the other one doesn't. You know, you're like, hey, you brought it up. 
You brought it up. In salvation, Jesus gives us his Father. In salvation, Jesus gives him, us himself. He is our Savior, and get this, our big brother. I have not ascended to the Father, but go to the brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Notice the distinction he makes between his relationship with the Father and the relationship that the disciples have with the Father. My God and your God, not our God. He's our Father, but He's not our God because Jesus is God because He is the Son who shares the same nature with the Father and the Spirit. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Jesus shared His Father with us. Jesus shared His Father with us. While John 20 is the first incident of Jesus calling them His brothers, He early, earlier in His teachings taught them to approach God as His Father, but now risen from the dead, He's, he's, he's saying, look, look, I'm your brother. We began the message by, by being in Matthew 6. He said, I'm, I'm going to teach you guys to call on my father as your father. And, and now by the end of it, we see him saying, and I'm your brother. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Now, I need to conclude this message so you see three points to put a bow on this thing. Turn from John 20 back to John 1. I want to show you a couple of verses by way of conclusion to put a bow on this message. As we have discussed this morning, uh, it's National Adoption Month, and so for the month, I want to teach us doctrine of God and doctrine of salvation, and, and I, I want to do that to kind of stir in us maybe a desire, hey, I, you know, I want to adopt, I want to welcome some babies, but more important than like maybe a couple of people mobilized to welcome the orphan, I, I, want, I want God to draw us in repentance and faith and worship of Him and, and, and to hear Him speaking to us. This is who I am. This is what I've done for you. And, and for our hearts to beat and say, tell me more, tell me more, I want to know more about you. We preach the, the word not as, a, as a, a matter of giving information. We preach the word of God as a matter of seeking God for transformation. John chapter 1, verse 11. Look at the text. John 1, 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is the work of God. It is His will. New, new birth, new life, being adopted into His family. This is, this is a wonderful work that He has given. In a moment, we're going to come to the communion table. We're going to sing songs of worship. And, you know, a table is for family. So as we come to the table, we're literally picturing what He has done. He's, he's, he's made us family. The Son has given us His Father. By way of conclusion, let me ask you, who, who is your daddy? Are you, are you in Him? Do you come to church and you hear about Him, but you haven't personally cried out to Him, I have sinned against you. I need your forgiveness. I want you as my Father. I've heard what you have done. Forgive me. I invite you to, to come to Him. I, I invite you after the service, if you have more questions about that, to, to ask them, come to Him. I invite those of you who are in Him to go deeper and really, really get this. When you're calling Him Father, it's, it's not a title, it's a reality. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. You know, in the Old Testament, only 15 times was God referred to as the Father. Only 15 times. Only 15 times. 
Where does it occur? It is often in reference to the nation of Israel or the king of Israel. Never was God called father of an individual or human beings in general in the Old Testament. This is special. In the New Testament, numerous references of God being our father can be found. The designation of God as father expresses his relationship with those who by faith have become his children. Are you in him? Do you know your father? Do you hear your father calling you this morning? Do you hear the voice of his son? who is now your, your brother, who, who is your big brother? Luke chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus says, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Do you hear his word and respond? Do you show that he's actually your big brother in your life by the way that you live and the way you obey? Listen, there's not a person in this room who got through the week unscathed. All of us have done things that we ought not to have done. All of us have broken the law of God. That's why it's so important that when we gather on Sunday, we have a minister of the Word to stand in front of us to say, but there is hope and there is healing. All you who are weary, all you who have wandered, all you who have transgressed, behold the Son who has taken the penalty for you. Come to Him. Be washed. Be cleansed. Rehearse this message of the Gospel. There's nothing that you can do to, to, to make him love you more. There's nothing you could do that, to make him love you less. He has given you his love. Do you enjoy this ministry that the Father has given to you through the Son? Who is your dad? Who is your brother? Lastly, where is your family? The church is the family of God, 1 Timothy 3.5. Therefore, the church constitutes his household, 1 Timothy 3.15. Its ministers belong to him. We are genuinely a family. Sometimes I'll hear, hear, hear people say, you know, I don't, I don't have family here. Uh, in, my, in my own life, all of my, all of my family's gone. My dad's not here. My mom's not here. My stepmom's not here. I, my brother's not here. Uh, you know, uh, in a sense, you, you can say, I'm the only one in my family who is here. But that's not true. Delray Church is my family. God has genuinely made us a family. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have brothers and sisters. When we call each other brothers and sisters, that's a reality. Don't, you know, sometimes we, we say things often enough, hey, bro, or whatever, and it, and it loses its power. No, like when you're dealing with someone in your local church and you say, hey, bro, that's a literal reality. And I hope that literal reality transforms the way you live and the way you worship. Hence, community groups are a priority. Hence, getting together during the, the week is a priority. Eating together, fellowshipping together, serving, going out, and sharing the good news together. This is transformation. This is gospel. If you come from a broken home, here, here, you have a family that is no longer broken. You have a brother and a father who is perfect. And the Spirit poured out on you for this work. Our Father in the Son, brothers and sisters, Let's pray, let's respond, let's come to Him, let's come to the communion table. Uh, first I'll pray and let's seek His sanctifying graces as we uh, wind down the worship service with song and communion. But first, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. We thank You that You sent Your Son to make us sons and that his unique monogamous relationship with you, he would, in a sense, share with us. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have shared your Father with us. We thank you that you welcome us as your brothers and as your sisters. That you have not left us without a big brother to protect us, to fight for us, to watch over us. You are the perfect big brother. You are the perfect savior. You are the perfect sacrifice, the innocent lamb of God. As we come to the communion table and we have symbols that picture your body broken and your blood poured out, Lord, I pray that you would move through this sacred ordinance of communion, that you would move through the ministry of music to draw us closer to you, that you would stir our hearts and our minds a deep appreciation for this doctrine of union that we understand in the Son we've been made sons. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. We ask this. Amen.